Hello, my name is Mike, and the pastor at Watch It Baptist Church, and this is Watch It Baptist Church Online. You're joining us for the start of a new series looking in John's Gospel at the signs that John points us to in his account. It's going to take us some weeks to go through this, and we'll do it in two sections. We'll, over the next few weeks, look at the first of those, and then probably into the summer, we'll be looking at the rest. There are seven or eight signs, depending on which commentary you read and how you uh, are looking at John's Gospel. But the last one of those is the resurrection. And it was that sign that we looked at last week as we drew on John's resurrection account in John 20. What we're going to try to do today is get a little bit of an overview look at the Gospel itself and then try and put this first sign and its uh, text into context. So we'll be reading that first bit of uh, the Bible in a little bit. I'm going to pray first and then we'll have a look at some context before we read from John 2. So let's pray. Father God, thank you for revealing yourself and revealing Jesus to us in the Bible. We pray that we would never put you lower than the revelation that shows us who you are, that we would lift Jesus up and lift up you, our heavenly and almighty Father. And we pray the Holy Spirit be with us as we engage with this text and the whole of the gospel that surrounds it. Amen. Okay, so let's begin with a couple of little things uh, that will hopefully characterise the way we do this sequence. This series looking into some of the bits of John's Gospel. We're not reading the whole Gospel. We are looking at these seven signs. Signs are the word that John uses for miracles. And, and the reason why he does that isn't because he doesn't think they're miracles. It's because he wants to draw our attention to something that we might learn from each of those occasions, each of those episodes. So he wants us to understand what those miracles signify. So he calls them signs. And he's not suggesting that these are the only signs that Jesus did. He is just arranging them to show us particular things, to give us a particular uh, message or piece of information. So we're going to be looking at a thing that theologians call Christology. Christology is, is Christology. It means kind of theological understanding about Jesus, who he, um, who he is and what that means, why it's significant. So we'll be doing a lot of that because that's really the heart of John's gospel. He wants to talk to us about who Jesus is and what that means. So a lot of what John touches on us, and we'll find this uh, repeated as we go through these seven signs. What, a lot of what, what um, John wants us to remind us of is the identity of Jesus. And he kicks that off. Uh, and this is why we're not going to, to our passage in John 2 straight away, because we're going to look at some John 1 stuff first. So you'll probably be familiar with the opening of John 1, which says, In the beginning, the Word already existed. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. He existed in the beginning with God. God created everything through him, and nothing was created except through him. The Word gave life to everything that was created, and his life brought light to everyone. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness can never extinguish it. So that tells us something straight away about Jesus. Now, it may be that it, 
maybe it strikes you that the word Jesus is never used, but we get some clues, don't we? In the beginning, the word already existed. The word was with God and the word was God. He existed in the beginning with God. So he's part of who God is. And then later on in verse 14, it says the word became human and made his home among us. He was full of unfailing love and faithfulness, and we have seen his glory, the glory of the Father's one and only Son. So John is giving us clues about what he means by word. So why doesn't he use the word Jesus rather than the word word? The reason for that has something to do with Greek philosophy that was popular and present in the, uh, in the culture that John was living in at the time. So the idea in Greek philosophy of the word uh, is, uh, the, the Greek word is logos, and that word logos, which means word, also seemed to frame a concept that there was a, a kind of organising principle in the universe, that there was a, a kind of rationalising force that held everything together. And so part of what John wants us to understand is that if you can imagine that unifying uh, organizing force or being then what you're thinking of is Jesus that's his role in creation in the universe so he uses the word to try and get that across now that opening uh, poem that John includes in his gospel um, is uh, the beginning of this emphasis on Jesus' identity, and it's there in place of what Matthew and Luke do in terms of telling the story of Jesus' birth. So this is kind of an origin story for those of you who like your um, superhero films. You'll be you'll be uh, familiar with the idea of a, of a origin story. This is where Jesus comes from. This is where it begins. And so in this gospel, in John's account, he is doing something that's well described by uh, the Spice Girls in their song, Who Do You Think You Are? And for many of the same reasons. So the Spice Girls sing, swing it, shake it, move it, make it, who do you think you are? Uh, and then there's a second line, um, or is it in my notes? Uh, yes, trust it, use it, prove it, groove it, show me how good you are. So really, part of what John is saying is these are the things that Jesus did. This is the way he swung it and shook it and moved it and made it. Uh, and this, this is the things that he showed and the groove that he got into and the message that he put across. You know, I'm, I may never draw a parallel between the Spice Girls lyrics and Jesus again. That might be just enough of that. But Jesus says, um, in so many of what John presents to us, this is who I am and this is why it's important. And actually, this is this is crucial to how we read this gospel. We are looking to be able to answer two questions. One, what kind of God do we have? What, what does Jesus tell us about what kind of God we have and what kind of God God is? And secondly, so what? What does that mean for us? If it is this kind of God, how does that have an impact on us and on the world? While we're thinking about the wider gospel um, situation. It's worth uh, just having a little look at some of the theories around when and why and where it was written. Um, so there is some 
discussion about this because uh, it's not terribly clear from the text itself. Um, there is a kind of a traditional idea that it was written in Ephesus, city in um, what's now Western Turkey, part of a sort of Greek culture at the time, a Roman province called Asia Minor, where John was living when he wrote it. There's also a real emphasis in John's Gospel on the temple and its significance. Um, and we see this uh, from very early on in, in the Gospel. It would seem that with that emphasis, it seems strange that John wouldn't refer to the destruction of the temple in AD 70, which has led a lot of people to think this was written before that, maybe AD 60, AD 65, something in that region. Um, we believe it was for those who already knew Jesus and might have been encouraged to hold on to that faith, maybe who felt uncertain or who were finding other ideas clamouring for their attention. Part of the reason why we think those things is because of John's very kind providing of a stated purpose. So in chapter 20, verse 31, this is all the way down the other end of the gospel. John writes this. These things are written so that you may continue to believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing in him, you will have life by the power of his name. Now, it's thought that this is uh, the John who writes this. Uh, he tends to refer to himself, we think, as the disciple Jesus loved, um, is uh, James's brother, one of the sons of Zebedee. Um, we don't know that's the case, but that's been, for a lot of people, where they think it sits most comfortably. So because John gives us this stated purpose, this is why I'm writing this, it's possible for us to pick up on a couple of things. One is, so that you may, con may continue to believe. Now, you will come across translations that say that you may believe. And so this has led some scholars to feel that it might be for those who don't know Jesus at all yet, whereas others who, who, who favour this may continue to believe thing would say it's a reinforcement. It's a, a gospel written um, to provide evidence for those who already believed, but who perhaps were looking to develop their understanding or to respond to the challenges to their faith from around them. Finally, I want to mention that John's Gospel is full of little techniques, little patterns and lots of numbers. Um, I did read, a, I got slightly distracted this week by um, a, kind of a half chapter in a book that talks about why the 153 is important in John 21, when there's 153 fish counted that come uh, from the net from a, from a big catch of fish. Now, I'm not going to get uh, stuck into that. You can ask me about it later if you want to. But John is big on numbers. He's big on the numerical value of words, it would seem. And he's also very keen on the number seven. Uh, and we'll pick up on that in a moment. So that's something about the gospel as a whole. I'm going to have a quick look at what John 1 tells us before we then read the passage in John 2. Yes, I am aware we've been going for about 10 minutes. And this probably will be a slightly longer session. Uh, but still hopefully not too long. So John 1 gives us um, three really important things. Number one is this prologue that starts in the beginning. Uh, the word already existed. The word was with God, that, that kind of thing. So there is a this is who Jesus is element going on there. Secondly, it gives us the testimony of John the Baptist who says, um, I, I'm not the Messiah but I am pointing towards the Messiah. And then eventually, um, 
in verse 29 and 30, John sees Jesus and says, look, the Lamb of the God who takes away the sin of the world. And then Jesus uh, is baptised. Yes. Different accounts of that, how that happens are available in other Gospels. The other three Gospels are very different from John. They, they're called synoptic. Uh, and their similarities and how they work with each other, even some suggestion that they all use the same source material. But John's very different, and he organises his account much more by theme than by timing. So we shouldn't assume that John's uh, account is in a completely random order, but we do need to be aware that John puts things where he puts them because he wants them to be understood in the context he places them. He, he wants, the meaning for him is more important than historical progress. And so he puts things in a context that it's designed to help us understand. So, so yes, there's a difference with, with John's gospel. But here, here in John 1, we have this uh, identification stuff. So John says, I saw the Holy Spirit descending like a dove from heaven and resting upon him, upon Jesus. I didn't know he was the one. But when God sent me to baptise with water, he told me the one on whom you see the Spirit descend and rest is the one who will baptise with the Holy Spirit. I saw this happen to Jesus. So I testify that he is the chosen one of God. Um, other accounts, Matthew's account particularly, is quite helpful in that description of how Jesus is baptised by John. And then, then you have, um, from that, you have this sense that uh, God identifies who Jesus is. And that after that, as the disciples first start following Jesus, there are various different titles given to him. So Jesus is referred to just in the second half of John 1 in the following ways. He's called the Messiah, verse 20, the Lamb of God in 29, Rabbi in 38, Jesus of Nazareth in 29, where he comes from, son of God in 49, king of Israel in 49 as well, and seventh is the son of man in verse 51. So seven titles, just in half a chapter. Um, and most of them are the ways in which he's described by disciples or by John the Baptist. So his identity is reinforced there as well. And then right at the very end of chapter one, uh, we get this from Jesus talking to Nathaniel, who's been a bit rude about where Jesus comes from. Um, so Jesus says, uh, I tell you the truth, you will all see heaven open and the angels of God going up and down on the Son of Man, the one who is the stairway between heaven and earth. And that's quite a, a loaded picture, like an image. Um, Jacob is uh, referred to as the father of Israel, um, or father of, yeah, father of Israel. his middle name is Israel, or a given name by God is Israel. Jacob has this vision of this ladder or this stairway between earth and heaven. And so for Jesus to come along and say, that's me, is quite significant. He also makes it very clear that he is a connection point. And there are many ways in which this happens, not least that he is identified as being both one with God, but also made flesh. So he becomes human but he is God. We've covered all of that just in chapter one. And then at the end of chapter one, he says, and I'm the bridge. I'm the, I'm the link point. I'm the stairway that connects heaven and earth. 
really quite astonishing. So having identified himself as this stairway, we then go on to the beginning of chapter two. Okay, so I'm going to read from the New Living Translation. Uh, I'm reading John chapter 2, verses 1 to 12. Um, what I will do, though, is quickly highlight something that is different in other translations. I'm confident using the NLT for this, but I do want to just highlight this. Uh, there's a difference in, in verse 1 of this between the NLT and some other translations because they start on the third day. And for some, in fact, many commentators, the use of that phraseology on the third day is very significant because it, it is, they believe, John's deliberate arrow pointing to the resurrection and how this story is going to develop and be fulfilled. But the NLT says this, the next day there was a wedding celebration in the village of Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there and Jesus and his disciples were also invited to the celebration. The wine supply ran out during the festivities, so Jesus' mother told him they have no more wine. Dear woman, that's not our problem, Jesus replied. My time has not yet come. But his mother told the servants, do whatever he tells you. Standing nearby were six stone water jars used for Jewish ceremonial washing. Each could hold 20 to 30 gallons, and Jesus told the servants, fill the jars with water. When the jars had been filled, he said, now dip some out and take it to the master of ceremonies. So the servants followed his instructions. When the master of ceremonies tasted the water that was now wine, not knowing where it had come from, though of course the servants knew, he called the bridegroom over. A host always serves the best wine first, he said. Then when everyone's had a lot to drink, he brings out the less expensive wine. But you have kept the best until now. This miraculous sign at Cana in Galilee was the first time Jesus revealed his glory and his disciples believed in him. After the wedding, he went to Capernaum for a few days with his mother, his brothers and his disciples. OK, so that's the passage that we're looking at. You'll notice that at the end of it, John refers to this as uh, this miraculous sign. It was the first time Jesus revealed his glory. So he's kind of saying to us, this is the first sign that I want you to notice and pay attention to. It was a wedding at Cana. And we find later on that the same Nathaniel, who is cheeky about Nazareth and to whom Jesus says this thing about the um, stairway. Where does it say? Stairway between heaven and earth. The same guy that he's from Cana. Not only that, but this is chapter two, we arrive at Cana, and in chapter four, we come back to Cana, having been in Jerusalem and Samaria in the meantime. That doesn't necessarily mean that Jesus has done a lot of traveling in a short space of time. It might be because John wants us to understand something of the uh, points he's trying to make through the locations where he's placing Jesus. But, excuse me, <coughs> but what he does perhaps want to draw our attention to is a little pattern that we see. So this is a Jewish tradition. It's an, it's an institution of Jewish life. The next encounter that Jesus has will be um, with a Jewish um, rabbi called Nicodemus in chapter three. And then in chapter four, he has an encounter with a Samaritan woman 
at a well, the well being a sacred well, so it's another institutional symbol, as is the rabbi. And then at the end of chapter four, we have uh, Jesus healing uh, the son of an official. Uh, he's a government official, so he probably would have been Gentile again. So we have kind of Jewish, Jewish, Gentile, Gentile. There's a little that sense of things are being bracketed and then brackets inside and brackets inside, kind of a repetition of some of the themes. So let's go back to, to chapter two. Um, there's this wedding that takes place. Now, weddings were an institutional um, heartbeat of the Jewish community. And Jesus goes with his friends because whole communities of people would be invited. You notice that Jesus' mother was invited, and so Jesus was invited too, and so were all his disciples. It may be that they were invited partly because Jesus' mum was there, but also because Nathaniel was there and the disciples were his new friends. It's not really clear, but you get a sense of how big a community occasion this might be. Cana isn't too far away from Nazareth or Capernaum. They're all in the Galilee region. Uh, but Cana is more up in the hills, we think, and Capernaum is down near the lake shore. So some points we might want to consider. Um, Jesus refers to his mother as a woman. Now, I have come across folks who've felt a bit troubled by this, that they think it's not um, respectful enough. In actual fact, the word used is a respectful term, and Jesus uses it throughout John's Gospel with different women. He says, and in fact, on Resurrection Day, he says, woman, why are you crying? And it's not woman, you know, why, why aren't you doing this? It's, excuse me, mom, can you explain to me? It's, it's a much more polite term than it might seem to be to us. Secondly, he says, my time has not yet come. Now, this again is a John theme. So my time or the hour in different translations refers to that sort of crescendo moment at the end of the gospel that is uh, the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus. So he's saying the big moment hasn't arrived yet. But while we might see that as a symbol of reluctance, it might just as easily be that we recognise that Jesus is drawing a kind of a, a metaphorical line in the sand here. He's kind of saying, um, yes, mum, I, I get that I'm your son. And so your authority is important. But at, from this point, the authority that I answer to is no longer family. It's my father in heaven. It's the God that he's, the God who sent me to this place. It might simply be a way of saying uh, to her, but perhaps more importantly to us, this is, this is the moment where the authority that I answer to, I recognise as different. Thirdly, uh, he does get involved. So although it might seem that he's reluctant, he is active. Um, the way John writes it, it seems almost immediately after saying, my time has not yet come, we then have Mary saying to the servants, he's going to give you some instructions. You're going to need to follow them. Now, you might say, how does Mary get away with this? Well, possibly because she's a guest at the wedding, the servants are servants. <clears throat> But also possibly because she understands, A, what Jesus is like, that he is kind. She will have experience of his personality. But also that um, he is carrying authority and that he will act on that authority. 
and that he will get involved and he will deal with this. The next thing to note is this use of stone water jars. Now the water jars were made of stone rather than clay because clay can become corrupted, I suppose. Uh, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? In terms of ceremonial cleanliness, a clay pot can end up bad, but a stone one can't. So the stone jars were particularly important for holding water that could be used for ceremonial washing. Now, Jesus does a couple of things here. One is he changes the purpose of the ceremonial washing jars. He does something different with them. He also uses them for transformation. So he changes something from institutional to living. In fact, if you look at the way in which he handles his encounter at the temple later on in chapter two, there is again this sense that something stone and institutional is being given new life and new purpose through Jesus' interaction with it. Uh, next, I'd want to draw to your attention <coughs> that the audience for this um, sign is not primarily the guests at the wedding because the master of ceremonies doesn't know how this thing has happened. He, he goes to the bridegroom and says, well, this is amazing. <clears throat> you know, it's, it's easier to notice cheap wine when you first arrive and you haven't had much to drink yet. This is the good stuff um, and you've saved it up. And, uh, but he has no sense of where this has come from. So the audience is the disciples, Jesus' mother, presumably, and the servants. They're the ones who know. So if you like, those who aren't included in the institution are the priority for seeing the miracle. Those who aren't bound up in the institutional expectations are the ones who get to see Jesus's glory at work. And then we have the outcome. So at the end of the passage, at least in the NLT version, it says this. <clears throat> this miraculous sign at Cana in Galilee was the first time Jesus revealed his glory and his disciples believed in him. So he acted from compassion. He did something that brought celebration. He did something that converted or transformed the situation around him. He helped this wedding to take place well. And he did it because he wanted to bring his goodness to the situation, but also because it meant his disciples and those servants, those outside the institutional boundary, would see his glory and that his disciples would come to have faith in him. Now, we know from the rest of the gospel accounts that that faith was messy and inconsistent and flawed. But it's still there. At this point, these disciples put their trust in Jesus, even if they're not entirely sure how that's going to play out or what it means for them. They are, however, starting to get a sense, just beginning to get a sense of who this God is is that has given the Son of God to them. Uh, perhaps it's significant, given that we're at Cana, that it's Nathaniel in chapter 1, verse 49, who says, Rabbi, you are the Son of God, the King of Israel. And they start believing in him at this point. I think I said earlier, this is also the first of Two signs that take place in Cana 
one very much in a Jewish context and the other, it would seem, in a Gentile one. Okay. It is important that we recall that John is really keen on us seeing Jesus' identity. He's done a lot of work to help prepare us in chapter one, and he's reinforcing it now with what Jesus is doing in chapter two. It would seem, particularly from the way Jesus responds to his mother, that there is no uncertainty in Jesus about who he is. I was thinking about the things people have said and written about identity. Uh, and I, I came across this Oscar Wilde quote. He, he wrote this. Most people are other people. Their thoughts are someone else's opinions. Their lives are a mimicry. So they, they mimic others in how they live. Their passions a quotation. And I suspect if we look around us and we think about the people that we know, we notice that to be quite true. But Jesus was not like that. Jesus was so sure of who he was that nothing in his life mimicked something else. Nothing in his life was a regurgitation of something that had gone before. He was and remains fully human and fully God, full of compassion, determined to bring transformation and to change things and fulfil things. That is the God that we're introduced to in the person of Jesus in these opening um, sections of John's Gospel. And I think it's with that theme in mind that I want to bring things to something of a conclusion. Brennan Manning wrote, define yourself radically as one beloved by God. This is the true self. Every other identity is illusion. Jesus knew exactly who he was. He knew he was accepted and loved by his heavenly father. And although I've said before, we need to look at Matthew's gospel for a fuller account of that baptism narrative, that is where we pick up on that really strong seam of Jesus identified as God's loved son. We can't really be ourselves unless we're able to tap into something of that. We are adopted by our heavenly father. And that's made possible through the work of his son, Jesus, who is the bridge, the stairway between heaven and earth, able to make incredible things happen by being both divine and human at the same time. Jesus is big on replacing and fulfilling. He's looking to replace the water of those jars with a rich, tasty wine, a thing for celebrating, a thing for a banquet, a thing for throwing streams around and, and popping corks and, and popping party poppers and throwing out confetti and having ticker tape parades and saying, Jesus has come. He puts that level of celebration into these jars, which are set aside 
or holy if you like. But it's no longer about a ritual cleaning on the outside, it's about a celebration of who Jesus is. Jesus is about transformation. And it will become apparent in the next chapter and the one after how far Jesus can transform individuals if they're willing to buy into what he's offering. Later in the gospel, he'll talk about being living water and the bread of life and whatever else. He is going to be the one who changes everything. And he's going to continue to bring compassion. That's the sort of God that he is. He's going to continue to be the one who changes the assumptions, who challenges the institutions. Ultimately, by knowing who he was, Jesus transformed lots of things around him. Possibly everything. And it's that transforming power that we are offered, that we are invited to know and to share. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for the signs that you performed. The meaning behind the miracles that you gave. We thank you for that party that finished with so much celebration because you stepped in. We thank you for the celebration that we get to share because you stepped in. And we pray that we'd be willing to see ourselves transformed as you keep that stairway between heaven and earth open. Amen. Okay, here we are looking at our three questions as we come to a close. Question one, I'm going to borrow uh, a little quote from Kung Fu Panda 3, uh, because you can never have too much Kung Fu Panda in your life. So Master Shifu in Kung Fu Panda 3 says this, I'm not trying to turn you into me, I'm trying to turn you into you. Knowing who we are is so important. Jesus knew who he was and it made an enormous difference. So the question is this, how do you want to become more like you, the you that you want to be? What are the ways in which you long for Jesus to transform you? Question two, those stone jars were for ceremonial washing. They had a religious purpose. But that purpose was stone. It wasn't alive. The question I want to ask is this. In which ways, maybe there's just one, maybe there's lots, is your religious life lacking life, even if it has lots of religion? Question three. The disciples saw the glory of Jesus and they put their faith in him. How does your experience of Jesus change the way you see the world? 
does it still change the way you see the world? Maybe it doesn't. How might it do? Okay, that's it for this time. Next time that we're looking in John's Gospel, we're looking at chapter four, uh, verses, I think, 43 to 54. Uh, it's the healing of the official's son. Do feel free to have a look at that in advance and to look at everything that comes between the wedding and that as well as Jesus meets Nicodemus and the Samaritan woman. I'm gonna pray as we finish and I'm gonna say goodbye. Lord Jesus, would you keep presenting yourself before us as the one who is the Son of God? Would we be confident of your identity and all the difference that makes? And would we keep asking what kind of God it is who is our God? Amen. Take care. God bless. I'll see you soon.